So before this service, I was talking with Harry, and um, he told me this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but <laughs> he told me this story that there was this young preacher, and he goes up to the pulpit, and it's his first time, and he's preaching, and his parents are in the audience, and after the service, he goes down, like, what do you think, Mom? What do you think of the sermon? And she was like, oh, son, you missed so many opportunities to sit back down. <laughs> So hopefully they will not be true of me today. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know me, my name's CJ, and I just wanted to share a little bit about myself. So I was born in Henrico County, and then I moved to Louisa, and that's where I grew up most of my years. And my parents are here, actually tonight, or today, and they were very faithful in just sharing to me about Jesus and God, but when I was growing up, it wasn't really attractive to me. It wasn't until I got to college my freshman year where the Christian organization I work for now called Campus Outreach, um, some of their members sat down with me and just continued to share the gospel with me, which eventually led to me my faith my freshman year of college. So now I'm on staff with that same organization. Campus Outreach is a Christian ministry that's national all across college campuses, just seeking just to spread the gospel, evangelize students, and to disciple them, and to send them off into the world. And I'm also the new evangelism director of our church. And what that looks like is just seeking to equip you all to be able to share your faith wherever you may be. So the text that we'll be looking at today is Isaiah 52, verse 7. So I want to say that the purpose of why I chose this. So the subject that I was assigned this morning is evangelism. And I want to preface my sermon by saying that my primary focus isn't necessarily the methods or the responsibility of evangelism, though I'm going to talk about it for a little bit. But what I want us to see this morning is the value of the gospel that was entrusted to us. Because I've noticed something really strange, and I guess it's just like a human thing. But the, thing that, the things that we treasure in private, we display publicly. So, for example, like if you have a favorite football team, like you're going to be talking about that with like eagerness. For me, it's like photography, um, yeah, photography, fishing, and if, as I know it's going to sound really strange, but I love cats. If you talk to me about cats, I will become your, you will be my best friend. And it's really strange because, like, again, the things that we enjoy in private, we're going to talk about publicly. So it's, my fear is that we don't treasure the gospel in that same way, that are we really eager to tell people about the good news that we've been entrusted to us? Because, I mean, if we really treasure the gospel in private, wouldn't it just come out naturally in our conversations with people? So that's why, like, I'm here this morning. I want us to see the value of the news that has been entrusted to us. So as I was studying, I think maybe two days ago, it occurred to me that I put myself and all of you all in the crosshairs of the devil. Because it is his, in like 2 Corinthians 4, 4, his very purpose is to blind you to the truth that I'm about to tell you all about the value of the gospel. So I just want to call you all to pray, not only just for me, but pray for yourselves and for the congregation, those who are listening, that, that your eyes would be open to the value of this good news. So Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
So the first observation I want to make is the position of this person that Isaiah is talking about. So in the original language, Isaiah uses the word basser, which means herald. Heralds are royal messengers of the king. It's the herald's responsibility to announce the news of the king to his subjects and as well as to his enemies. Whether good or bad, the herald is not to deviate from the news that the king entrusted to him. And then I want us to notice the value of this herald. Isaiah calls his feet beautiful. So if you follow me on Instagram, you probably noticed that I had a dog for about a couple of months. And one day I was walking Flapjack, and I like to walk around barefoot time to time. And I'm walking Flapjack, and I look down at my feet, and I'm just thinking to myself, man, the property manager would kill me if he knew that I had three dogs out here. Uh, never mind. I thought it would land well, never mind. But anyways, <laughs> because like feet are gross, and like feet are like really nasty. And especially for this herald, like this person is like going all across Israel, going up down the mountains. He probably had like the most disgusting feet in all of Israel. So how could Isaiah possibly call these feet beautiful? So the beauty of the herald's feet is not found in and of themselves. The value is found in the message that they carry. And Isaiah is not the only person who saw the value of good news. Hundreds of years later, the apostle Paul quotes this same verse in Isaiah in Romans. Romans chapter 10, 13 to 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So do you guys see who Paul applies this text to in Isaiah? He applies it to Christians. He applies this verse to the gospel that we have today. We are the fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 7. Since we are the fulfillment of this passage, the virtues that Isaiah ascribes to this news will characterize our gospel. So again, I want us to see the value of the gospel. When we see the gospel's worth, the more that our hearts will cherish Christ. And it's my prayer that evangelism will be an overflow of our personal enjoyment of God. So if you're waiting for my Baptist three points, here they are. <laughs> the gospel is news of peace, happiness, and news of salvation. So first, the gospel of peace. Who publishes peace? This herald proclaims news of peace. So typically when we think of peace, we think about absence of external troubles. So whether it's like absence of like health issues or peace with your family. And you don't have to be alive very long to know that this type of peace is really fleeting. So even in the historical context of this passage, the nation that was exiled and was brought back, the peace that they experienced was also temporary. Eventually, this nation would be conquered again by other nations. So we are not called to announce external peace to people because God has not promised it in this side of eternity. So in what way is the gospel news of peace? And I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 tells us that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. And I want us to notice all of this like reconciliation language and news of peace language in this passage. 
So it says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So again, just notice all that, mess, all that news of peace just in that one passage. Five times, Paul uses the word reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship. Two parties that were once at war with each other now have peace together. And notice the titles that Paul gives the message and ministry. They're titled reconciliation, like the gospel is the news of peace. And for a moment, I want to use this illustration uh, for us to see the beauty of this news of peace, we have to understand first what it means not to have peace with God. In the same way, a jeweler will take a black sheet and put it underneath a diamond in order to display its beauty. In the same way, until we understand the darkness of what it means not to have peace with God, we will not understand how beautiful this news is. So first, we have to understand that we were at war with God. A simple definition, definition of sin is the breaking of God's law. According to scripture, because of the failure of Adam and Eve, the nature of mankind is contaminated, meaning that all of us are inclined to evil before coming to Christ, which is why we sin. I think it was R.C. Sproul that once said, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. So what he meant by that was, is that sin is not just something that is outside of you, Sin is not just something that is foreign, but sin is something that is present in us. And as our hearts are inclined towards that, then the evil comes through this. And we say all the time that because God is holy, we are separated from him because of our sin. And I think also that consequently, and scripture will also affirm, because God is holy, we have separated ourselves from him. In the same way, criminals hide from authorities so do sinners hide themselves from God. All sin is fundamentally contrary to the nature of God. So I've took three attributes of God and how sin just confronts these attributes. Sin confronts the sovereignty of God. Sin will not tolerate the reality that God should be on the throne and govern this world. Sinning is an attempt to dethrone God and set oneself up against his rule. It has been said that we hate God's will because it's not our own. Sin denies the self-sufficiency of God. Every prodigal child who leaves his father's house is saying, in effect, that it's better to be elsewhere. And every time we sin, we say, in effect, to God, it is better to be somewhere else. Our sin makes us treat God as if he were just some bad company. Sin challenges the justice of God, and it dares God to do his worst. It is no wonder why scripture calls us sinners, rebels, and haters of God. And as if it were not bad enough that we're at war with God, scripture says that God was at war with us. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword and has his, bent, his bow readied and bent. I mean, what a terrifying reality to think that our loved ones are at war with the creator of the universe. That for the rebel who does not surrender, that God will execute. 
When man sins against man, God can intercede from them. But when man sins against God, who could possibly intercede? Who could defend us from the creator of the universe? Who is able to be our mediator? And it's a good thing that the gospel, it comes in with this blessed news of peace. Christ is our mediator. Christ is the one who reconciles us to God. Christ is the one who has brought peace between us and God. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how he obtained this peace for us. For our sake he made him who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we need two things to be reconciled to God. We need a perfect standing in our righteousness, and we also need to be free of guilt. And according to scripture, we have none of those things. Um, John Flavel, an old Puritan, created a hypothetical conversation between the father and son and discussing how our reconciliation with him, how our peace would be brought about with God. And he titled it The Father's Bargain. This is, begins with the father speaking. My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. The son responds, O oh, my father, such is my love and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their payment. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in, that there will be no more aftermath between you. At my hands shall you require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all my debt, all their debt. The father responds, but my son, if you undertake for them, you will reckon to pay every last bit. Accept no reduction, expect no reduction. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. The son responds, let it be so, Father. Charge it upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it proves a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverishes me of all of my riches, empty all of my treasures, I am content to take it. And nearly 2,000 years ago, we saw the fruit of this conversation take place. The son of God on the cross exchanged his perfect standing before God for our imperfect one. He suffered the wrath that was due to us, and we received the blessings that was due to him. By his life, death, and resurrection, he made unworthy sinners worthy of peace with God. And we obtain this peace according to Romans 5.1. It says we have peace with God through faith in his son. How could we not delight in this news? The next time your soul is troubled by sin and Satan's accusations, preach this truth to yourself, that Christ died that we could live. Christ was condemned so that we could be blameless. Christ suffered the wrath of God that we could be accepted by him. And this is the news of peace that we are charged to cry out to others. Second point, the gospel of happiness who brings good news of happiness. This herald is preaching news of joy. So you guys hear this sermon illustration all the time where 
oh, the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is rooted in God, and happiness is rooted in things of this world. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that joy and happiness are synonyms, that there's nothing wrong with being happy in God. There's nothing wrong with being joyful in God. And the word happiness isn't really something that's bad, but it's just, I think the essence of what's the problem is, what is, is our happiness rooted in? So when I ask you guys a question, why should we be happy about the gospel? So you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, because our sins are forgiven, because we have eternal life. And those are good responses, but I know this may sound strange, but the crown jewel of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. And I would dare it, it's not even really living forever. Forever. We certainly should rejoice in these things, but that was not the end goal of Jesus' work for our salvation. So a book that was really helpful in me understanding this is a John Piper book called God is the Gospel. And he lays out the premise that God is the prime jewel and the prime joy of why we should have happiness. So he lays out some scriptures, and I'm going to share them with you all. So just a heads up. One of them contains the P word, which is a very controversial subject in the Baptist church. And the word is predestination. So do not get mad at me. I am just reading this. <laughs> Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and this is what he gets at, to the praise of his glorious and grace, of his glorious grace. So the end goal of God predestining and adopting us into his family is that we would rejoice in his glorious character. Romans 15, 8-9 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then he tells us the reason why Christ came and why Christ became incarnate. It says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the purpose of the incarnation was that in order for the Gentiles to praise God for being merciful. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the purpose of suffering, the sufferings of Christ, was to bring us directly into the throne room of God. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice that Jesus, in this verse, doesn't describe eternal life in quantitative terms. Jesus describes eternal life as having an intimate relationship with the Father and himself. So the ultimate purpose of why God saves us is so that we would bring, so that we would glory and have our joy and our happiness in him, in this life and in the next so the gospel should bring us happiness because we gain God himself. The focus of forgiveness and sins and eternal life is that we might enjoy the presence of God. It's sort of part news. So imagine a king. He says, all right, all right, subjects. All of you have been cleared of your penalty for your sins and your trespasses against me, but you can't come into my house. Like, you're not allowed to come into the kingdom. So, like, that's not really good news because, like, the subjects can't even get into see the king. 
But the good news of the gospel is, is not only has our sins been forgiven, <laughs> but the, the doors and the gates that once were closed are open. And the Father sits on the throne and he says, come, come to me. We have access to the throne room of God. And that, in that throne room, and Psalm 16 says, there is fullness of joy and everlasting pleasures at his right hand. So God has designed our souls in such a way that our highest happiness can only be found in him. St. Augustine says, you have, made your, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it is rested on you. Which is why the pleasures of this life is just so short-lived. We think, oh, if I were only in a relationship, I would be content. Oh, if I only had good grades, then I would, <laughs> then I would be happy. If I had this video game, if I had this car, if I had this house, if I had this friends, I would not complain. And we've all been there. Each time we obtain this thing that was just like so prized, doesn't it just the pleasure of that just immediately just go away? John Piper says, he, he equates that with ignorant children who are content and playing in the slum and with mud pies while God offers us a five-course meal in himself. And he tells us to come and enjoy, sit at his table and enjoy his presence. So the call of the gospel is to forsake the mud pies of this life and, and enjoy unrivaled pleasures in God. And when we speak the gospel to people, our focus should not be solely on the removal of enmity with God, but also our happiness in him. Because through his son, the obstacles that once was between us and our greatest joy have been removed. And Jesus says, whoever shall come to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes shall never thirst. D.T. Nile says, evangelism is just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find life. We have to share this life that we have gained with others. What's at, what is at stake in the worth of the gospel demands that we preach this news? So my last point, the gospel of salvation the herald in Isaiah was called to bring news of salvation to those who are in captivity. So salvation is deliverance or preservation from harm, ruin, or loss. So typically, typically when we think about salvation, we think about receiving eternal life, which isn't wrong, but it's just a narrow view of what Christ has delivered us from. So I noticed in the past couple of years that a lot of people have been outraged in our culture over the oppression of their freedoms. We think about all the time, like, oh, like, and this, of course, slavery is an abhorrent thing, but we think about it and we're outraged. We think about the Holocaust and we're outraged because, like, the rights of people, the rights of people were being oppressed. And today isn't in our culture freedom champion, like, oh, you have the right to make your own decision. My body, my choice, right? We champion freedom. We champion freedom in our culture today. But all around the world, people celebrate these supposed freedoms that they have, not realizing that they're slaves in the spiritual realm. According to scripture, there are spiritual forces that imprison the unsaved. The first one that scripture says that we're enslaved to Unsaved people are enslaved to sin. According to John 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what does it mean to be a slave to sin? A slave is a person who is obligated to obey the will of his or her master. Slaves do not have personal freedom to do whatever they desire. They are under the obligation to obey their authority. And according to those scriptures, outside of Christ's liberation, we have no freedom. Our thinking, our emotions, our our volition is tainted by the influence of sin that is present in us. And we're also slaves of death. Death is a universal, universal reality for, that each of us will face. According to scripture, it is appointed for every man to die. There is nothing that we can do to escape it. No amount of pleading will cause this reality to go away, nor ignoring this reality will cause it to disappear. Death holds all of humanity captive. Even the Bible acknowledges that the fear of death holds people in its grip. Hebrews 2.15 says, People who fear death are subjected to lifelong slavery. And the last person, spiritual force that we're enslaved to is Satan. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 summarizes the activity of Satan. In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, of the, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So two observations. First one, this verse calls him the God of this world. Satan, in a real influential way, has power and dominion in this world. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, it gives a frightening reality that the unbelieving are being held captive to do his will. And that means that if, the un- if Satan wants the unbeliever to do something, that they're going to do it. There's no pushback. There's no nothing. Satan is holding them in captivity, and he is determined to ruin the souls of billions of people. And, according- and in the same verse in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it tells us how he does that. He does it through blinding their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. In other words, he keeps people from seeing the beauty of the gospel, which is why I can preach on the news on the very value of the gospel and people's hearts not be moved by this truth, which is why some of you who have been faithfully sharing your faith with people over and over and over again, the reason why that they're not responding is because Satan is holding them captive to that. There are people in our community who are being held captive who are, can't even see the beauty of the gospel. They can't even see the value of it, and it's because of him. And the human condition is so poor outside of the grace of God that these enemies oppose our soul as, as, we, as long as we remain alive. And we don't need books on how 10 steps to become a better person. We certainly don't need books on how to get our best life now. We need books. <laughs> we don't need books. We need a Savior who's able to liberate, from, liberate us from these things. We need a Savior who's able to reach down in our pitiful condition, in our bondage. We need a Savior to bring us out of that. We don't need just a helper. We need someone to completely deliver us from captivity. And Christ is that labor, liberator. In Isaiah 61.1, it says, The Spirit of God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to those who are bound. The gospel is news of salvation by Christ. Do you feel bound by your sin and guilt? Christ proclaims this news of freedom to you. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Are you troubled by the weariness of your sin? He says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Does the crushing reality of death make you feel as though you're in prison? Don't be afraid. This Christ experienced death himself and raised from the dead and conquered death by his resurrection never to die again. And not only does he have the authority to raise his own life, he has the authority to raise up the life of all of those who will believe in him. And it's said in scripture, it is my father's will that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Are you frightened by Satan's twisted captivity over your life? Good news. 1 John 3, 8 says that the Son of God has appeared for this very reason, to destroy the works of the devil. All of this was accomplished by his work on your behalf, and all of those who place their faith in Christ receive redemption from these things. And I'm calling you all to have compassion on your fellow person when you go out to school or at your work and job, wherever you may be. You were once in bondage yourself to send death and Satan and the person next to you is in captivity. Do you have nothing to say to that person who is enslaved to these things, this good news of salvation? Let us follow the example of our Savior and proclaim freedom to those, freedom to those in our lives who are being held in captivity. So I want to close and that I hope is that you saw the value of what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel and that you have a sense of responsibility to proclaim this news to others. Because according to Jesus, this gospel ought to lead to joyful and bold abandonment of our old lives in exchange for his. He likens, he likens the kingdom of heaven to a, a man. So there's a treasure hidden in a field. A man stumbles across this treasure, and in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. So to the outside eye, this would have seen insane. This person was living in America, like people outside looking in, like, doesn't this person know how this would affect his retirement? Does he not care about, <laughs> does he not care about his family? He just sold everything that he has to get this treasure in this field. Does he not care what people would think of that? The shame that would bring upon himself and his family? And the price that this man had to pay didn't matter to him, nor that the ridicule that it would bring him. Why? Because he knew the value of what he was going to gain. And I want all of us to be like this man, people who see the value and treasure Christ so much that they would joyfully accept all the ridicule, all the, all the disrespect, and live sacrificial lives for his sake. When we see the value of what has been entrusted to us, it will overcome all the excuses and apathy that prevent us from sharing our faith. So I want to close with kind of like two housekeeping things. So if you're interested in learning more about the reason why, um, the why of evangelism and how to share your faith, we're offering a three-week course on um, evangelism. 
So it's going to be first week, we're going to talk about just our willingness. The training is going to be more of a heart. So why should we share our faith and the realities? What's at stake on our mission for Christ? And then the second week, we're going to just go over some methods of sharing our faith. So just different tools so that you all are all equipped to be able to share it. And then the last week, we're going to go out into the community and we're going to practice it. We're going to go out and proclaim the gospel to people. So if you're interested in that, it's going to start up next week. And Pastor Chris, over the next course, a few weeks, he's going to um, talk about evangelism and just preach it. And the second thing is that, as you know, I am working with a Christian organization called Campus Outreach. And I've been on UofL's campus every day for like the past week. And it's really, I'm not going to demonize them, but the need is great. And I really am seeking for people to come alongside me in this work on the campus. So if you are interested in any way to just come alongside me as I'm preaching and spreading the faith on the campus, I, my contact should be in the bulletins. I hope it is. But just reach out to me. And please don't assume that someone is like, oh, like someone else will take care of that. Do not assume that. Assume that you are the only person that um, is going to be willing to help me get the gospel on this campus. Um, so that's all I have, and I just want to pray us out. Heavenly Father, I pray that your people were able to see the glory of the gospel in your Son. I pray, God, that you would please fill all these souls with joy, and that it would lead, Lord, to just reckless abandonment, Lord. It's not even reckless, Lord. It's sane. It's sane, Lord, to give our lives to you. I pray, Lord, that they would, in their joy, proclaim this good news and that as they see your beauty and your majesty, Lord, and that evangelism would overflow. I pray that they would proclaim good news to the captives. There are people in our community, Lord, who don't know Christ. And I pray that wherever they may be, that they would share their faith with people and do it joyfully. I pray, Lord, that they would proclaim news to those who are not reconciled to you that their hearts will be broken, that man, that this person is at war. I pray, God, that you would break their hearts over that reality and that they would be compelled to preach the good news to them. Please, God, awaken us from our apathy. Oh, Lord, guard us from the excuses that we would just give ourselves fully to your mission, God. I pray that they will count their lives as something very little to be valued and that you would focus on one thing, that they would make their lives count to bear witness to the gospel of grace that was entrusted to them, Lord. And I pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.